Well, I think we'll see this lesson will fit right in with where Dad took us this evening and thinking about these pictures about our end. My lessons have been out of Exodus and talking about just seeing God and seeing a, a better picture of who he is as the book of Exodus uh, is truly a picture book of a description of God, that God is trying to explain to Israel who he is and showing these uh, amazing images. We, we left Moses up on a mountain last night. Uh, he is up there receiving the law. He's been given uh, important teachings. Uh, remember that we see God describing to Moses that I want a tabernacle. I want to dwell with my people and then giving the details in that tabernacle over the next few chapters, chapters that we often kind of skim through, and uh, if I had more nights here, we'd go through all of those chapters and go detail by detail, and I, I struggled choosing which ones, you only have six lessons, and I'd like to do about 35 of them with you, uh, but that might last a while, so I had to pick and choose, but you have Moses being given all of these laws and all of these details with the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and all these beautiful articles of what it would be like inside that Ark uh, and also what would be inside that tabernacle, and then also a description of the priesthood and how we need priests as the same before God. And so as God is giving all of these things to Moses while Moses is up on the mountain, uh, chapter 32 has a, a stunning turn of events. Chapter 32, verse 1 of Exodus. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I remember Moses been up there 40 days. We get to a point now where the people say, We have no idea what has happened to him. And Aaron, what you need to do is you need to make us gods. Get up and make us gods so that we can go on, so that it will go before us and lead us to the promised land. And of course, Aaron stands up and says, boy, we could never do something like that. That is a really terrible idea. And we need to repent of that idea right now because Moses will be back any minute. Uh, verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We won't do the whole sermon right there, but I'd sure like to. What an amazing turn of events that has happened at this moment. Well, Moses is on the mountain because God is giving to Moses 
all the details so that God can be in covenant relationship with these people, so that God can dwell in their midst. The people now say, you know what, we don't know about this Moses fellow. And so what we need is something that we can see. We need some idols to be able to lead us on the path so that we can go on. And I want you to think about how this all plays out as this opening scene begins. Where did these Israelites get all of this gold to be able to fashion this golden calf that they're about to worship? If you remember what God said when they were going to leave Egypt, he said that you were going to plunder them on your way out. And they've gone down to to that land and they don't have anything. And when they leave, they plunder Egypt. They take animals, they take clothing, they take gold, they take all kinds of things from Egypt. In fact, it's not even by force. God says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have them want to give it to you so that you will just get out of there. And what do the people do? But use the very blessings of God, the wealth that God had given them, to now turn and violate one of the earliest commandments that God had spoke to them and back in chapter 20 upon that mountain. And this is one of the problems with idolatry. This is one of the big issues that God has with idolatry is what we do is we take the good blessings of God and use them for sin. We take things that God says, I want you to have these wonderful things, and then turn around and worship it. And we're probably so much in the midst of this and the prosperity that we enjoy in this country and all the wealth and all the success that we have. And all that we acquire, we then turn around and put our hope and trust In physical things, the things that God has blessed us with. It is a terrible slap in the face to God for us to take what he gives us and then turn around and say, yeah, but I'm not interested in you, God. I'm just interested in the stuff. I'm interested in all the good things you give me. I'm just interested in all those physical toys. That's that's all I want. That's all that I care about. You imagine as a parent, if that was the response of your kids and all the provisions that you made and all that you gave them, the roof that put over their head and how you fed them and blessed them and all that. And they say, yeah, but I don't really care about you. I just want you to keep giving me stuff. And that's what's happening right here. Ah, this Moses guy, you know, and then the Lord, you know, we, we, we just need, we just need some, something before our eyes. So we'll use the things that God has given us. To worship these idols. And if that's not bad enough. The problem with idolatry is this desire to have a physical representation. We need something that we can see. I think this is part of the human condition as well. I don't know what it is about us. But we like to put our hope, our trust, and our very lives in the balances of things that we can touch and see. We don't want it to be in the invisible. It needs to be something we can see. And that's what the people are saying. Give us something we can see. I've asked for this Moses. We don't have it anymore. And so we need something tangible. We need something that we can see. You see that all the time in the religious world. It seems to have calmed down a little bit. It was just a few years ago. I remember in Tampa, Florida, 
Apparently the way the sprinklers were hitting the side of the building was causing supposedly an image on the Catholic Church of the Virgin Mary that people from all over the country were going to come see because of the pattern that was on there. We have this unbelievable bend toward needing something physical. If you go on eBay, you will have people with burnt toast and it will show a face of what they think is Jesus or an angel and they'll try to sell it to you for thousands of dollars and I kid you not, go look. And because we want some kind of physical contact. And the irony of it all is, do you think the people here are turning away from God? We read this and go, boy, they've given up on God, haven't they? No, they haven't. Look at it again. Verse 5. When Aaron sees all this, he builds an altar. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to who? Notice that Lord is all four letters capitalized. Yahweh, Jehovah God. We have built our calf. And we are going to worship Yahweh, Jehovah God, with our idol. They don't think that they, okay, let's give up on God and let's worship this metal thing. They're not that dumb. That's not what's going on. No, what's going on is the exact same thing we do. We can worship Yahweh through our tangible stuff that we have. I've got all my toys and all my wealth and I will do what I want and what pleases me, but I haven't turned my back on God. I haven't walked away from Him. Oh no, I love the Lord. I'm worshiping God. I'm with Him. I'm just doing what I want to do too. That's exactly what's going on. In fact, that's the excitement. Verse 6. They rose up early the next day. We're going to get up early. Tomorrow's a feast day. We're going to worship the Lord. But boy, it's going to be fun. We're going to get to do things our way. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. says there in verse 6. That they brought their burnt offerings, peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. Now do you remember, does that sound familiar from a little bit ago? Do you remember that is the exact same thing that happened when the 73 are allowed to go up on the mountain. And we saw in that first lesson with the blood of the covenant that there was the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. And then they go up on the mountain and what do they do? They sat down to eat and drink. Notice there is a shifting that, oh, we're worshiping God and we're in the presence of God and we've become before this. But what they've done is now added the things that they want to do as well. And they raise up and play. We're just going to we're worshiping God. This is really the really the result of idolatry (coughs) is what we don't see is how badly we are insulting God. And, And we ought to see it. But we don't. They make a golden calf. And say these are the gods O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Could that be any more insulting? Here's our little cow. Hey Israel. Here's what brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Here's your physical representation. Of, of course they knew that wasn't God himself. But it's their physical representation. Look, we can see God through our little gold cow. And we'll follow that. Okay, that's our God. This is why God does not reveal himself. In fact, he states, the reason I came to you in a voice and you didn't see any form 
It's because I knew what you would do. The kinds of things you still see today. Trying to make some kind of physical representation of God. And anything that we use as a physical representation of God is an insult and a denigration of God. And anything we put our hope and trust in and act as if it is our God, though we have not turned our back on God, but we put our hope in our wealth or in our jobs or in our careers or in our family or whatever it is, and we put our trust in that, God's insulted by that. And there's an easy way to know if we have an idol problem. Just imagine, if there's is there something in your life, if that was taken away, would that cause a crisis to you? That's one of the best ways to kind of do the internal analysis. What if it was subtracted from your life? Would you say, I can't live without that? If I lost that, well, I don't know what I'd do. That's the idol. That's where your trust is. That's what your life revolves around. That you don't know how you would get by. And so often that's what we do when it comes to idolatry is we don't realize that our heart has subtly shifted. Verse 6 says, they rose up to play. Interesting description there. (laughs) A lot of arguments about, well, what exactly, what does that mean by play? And I will contend with you that they did not say, let's play baseball. Uh, They are seeming to be full of kinds of revelry and wickedness, potentially even sexual immorality. It becomes a little bit clearer in verse 25 of this chapter that we'll get to in a few minutes when it says, when Moses saw the people had broken loose. Now it's interesting, our culture teaches you that's what you ought to do. You need to just let loose. Why don't you just let your hair down? You just need to relax. Just break loose of all these rules, all these morals, all these things that tell you what you should and shouldn't do. Moses says, when he says that they were broken loose, and notice, for Aaron had let them break loose, and notice the description, to the derision of the enemies. What do you think is going on that the people surrounding them are going, I can't believe they're doing that. I can't even believe those people are doing that. These Gentiles are looking at Israel who is at the base of the mountain and they're going, I can't believe they're doing that. That's what's going on. This is how bad it is of the things that are happening. They're behaving like pagan worshipers. They're partying. They're indulging their own desires. And notice they're doing all that, but they think to the glory of God. We're worshiping Yahweh. God's happy. We're we're happy. What's the problem, right? We're worshiping God, but we're fulfilling all of our desires. We're doing everything that pleases us. And how interesting that already we have this foreshadowing, as Dad talked about, the failure of Israel to give God the glory and becoming a blaspheming of the nations is already happening right here. Already the nations are going, well, can you believe these people? The people of God. Can't believe what they're doing. To get one more picture about what's happening here, listen to what Stephen says about this event. Acts chapter 7 and verse 39. Here's what Stephen says. Our fathers refused to obey him. That's Moses. 
but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols and rejoicing in the works of their hands. Stephen gives us an interesting insider's angle about what happened. It wasn't that the people were down there and they went, you know what, it's day 40. And I am just really nervous for Moses. I mean, it looks like burning fire up there. We read that in the text yesterday. You know, it looks like the mountain's on fire and Moses walked up into that. And I just don't know that we should wait anymore because 40 days in a fire sounds like a bad idea. Hey, Aaron, um, you know, what should we do? We're really concerned. Stephen goes, that's not what they were doing. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. In fact, you get the derision in the language of verse 1 of Exodus 32 when it says, As for this Moses, there's derision in that word. It's not, as for our great leader Moses, we don't know what's happened. This Moses guy, whatever. He's been gone, and we're glad. Hey, Aaron, make us some idols. We'll use those instead, and we'll go go on up. In fact, notice what Stephen says. In their hearts, they had turned to Egypt. Guys, we've barely been at the mountain. We're only in Exodus. I mean, we're barely there, and their hearts have already turned back to Egypt. They've already thrown Moses out. They already in their hearts want to go back to Egypt. And notice how Stephen says at the end of verse 41, they were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Look at what we've made. Look at us. We are so amazing. We are so great. We are so mighty. This is the nature of sin. Is the removal of our complete dependence upon God Onto ourselves, onto our works, onto what we do, onto our wealth. It is my wealth. It is my home. It is my job. It is my things. This is what idolatry is. We so often define idolatry as, well, I don't have a bale in my closet, so therefore I'm not an idolater. I must be doing okay. So all those idolatry passages don't apply to me. There's not an Asherah pole in my front yard. We're good. We are great idolaters for anything that takes our hope and trust and joy off of Christ and onto something else. Whatever that something else is, that is the idol. That is the thing we've put our hope and joy and trust in. That is the thing that matters most. That's why the book of Job is so fascinating, because that's how you're put to the test. If you take it all away, will you still serve God? I love that study. Maybe one time I'll come back here and we'll do Job. I preached through the book of Job. That took a really long time. You have to keep me here a really long time to do Job. But that beginning is everything. Because what Satan says to God, and God is the one who is on trial ultimately in that book, is that Satan says to God, the only reason people serve you is because you do good things for them. Take away the good things, tear down the hedge, 
make their life miserable and take away their health and they will curse you to your face. That's what Satan says. Basically, Satan tells God, you cause people to be mercenaries for you because you do good by them and that's the only reason they serve you. And do we prove that? For when something goes bad in our life, we lose something, we lose someone, things don't go according to plan and vision, we turn from God. This is where Israel is at right now. This doesn't look like this is right. Let's go back to Egypt. Boy, how many times they're going to say that. It was so much better back there when the Egyptians were throwing our baby boys in the Nile and we were being oppressed severely and being beaten. Let's go back there. And that's what we do. Here's Isaiah 49 that we looked at, that I'm setting the prisoners free and we sit there and go, boy, let's go back to prison. It'd be so much better. It'd be so much better to be in the darkness and be in sin than to be with this God who wants to be with us. This helps explain the response of God in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. There's God's response. So clearly this is not, oh, we're very concerned about what happened to Moses. And we sometimes laugh at the language because we'll read this argument about, you know, God will say, those are your people. Moses will go, no, those are your people. But do you get a realization of what God is saying? This isn't a joke to God. What God is saying, those can't be my people. Because my people don't act like that. Those are the people you brought out of, out of Egypt, Moses, but they're clearly not mine. The people have completely rejected God. They think they're worshiping God. God says... They're not even my people anymore. They don't even belong to me. Remember, all that God is doing on the mountain with Moses is so that he can be with these people. That he can be in covenant relationship with them. That he can enjoy fellowship with them. And at this moment, now God says, they're not my people. And furthermore says, the judgment they deserve is wrath. God just says, I should consume them. I should destroy them for what they've done because they are not behaving like my people. God could just simply say, I came down on a mountain with great fear and trembling and told them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods but me and make for yourself no graven image. And they have already broke the first two. In fact, even God says that. Did you see that? Verse 8, how quickly they turned aside from the way 
that I commanded them. Verse 7, they've corrupted themselves. Unbelievable what they have done. Verse 9, God says, I know what these people are like. They're a stiff-necked people. In essence, what God is saying, and they're not going to get any better. I've seen these people. It's like, I already know how this is going to go. I've seen these people. And they're going to continue to rebel, and they're going to continue to be stubborn, and they're going to continue to not obey, and look how quickly they turned away from the commands. And we want to read those things and go, well, boy, those are terrible people, how fast they turn away from God, right? That's the human condition. Just like we read Adam and Eve and go, you had one law, what's the matter with you? We would have done the same thing. And we read this and go, how could it be so fast that you turn away from God? We'd do the same thing. We hear the very words of God, get in our car and immediately, hey, you have an outburst of wrath, cut somebody off and yell at everybody. We do the same thing, you know? We, we, we get amazed by this, but this is the human condition. And the whole point that God is doing at this moment is trying to express to Israel and to express to all humanity that we deserve judgment. Judgment should rightly fall right now. There is no question that God would be right to have His wrath pour out, barbecue the people at this moment, and that be the end of them. That's what He says ought to happen. Verse 10, Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I consume them. Let's just be done with this. Because I know what they're going to do. This is such an important concept that is put forward for us to recognize. This is what we deserve. This is what we deserve. This is what we deserve. There should be a period right here and the rest of the Bible stops. That's it. God came down. God says, I'll be in covenant with you. All the people said, we will do all that is written in the book. And then God says, okay, I'm going to dwell with you. And you guys can't last 40 days. And you're already breaking all of the rules that I told you. The wrath of God should come. Watch what happens, though. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord... Why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. You see what Moses does? You have to be amazed by what Moses does. Because Moses could go, you know what, that sounds like a good idea. These are stiff-necked people and I think you'd be good if you made a whole nation out of me. Let's do that plan. Let me go ahead and step aside and go ahead and do that. I mean, poor Moses. We, we know how this is going to go for the poor guy. I mean, he's just begun. 
And God is offering up right here, I'll make a great nation out of you. And Moses says, no. These are your people. These are the ones you saved. And if you destroy them, then your name is not going to be glorified among the nations because that is the big deal about God, is that God would be glorified by all peoples. And if you bring them out here to this mountain and you kill them right here, what are they going to say about you except you brought them out here to kill them? You can't do that. Your name must be glorified. So notice the point of contact that Moses has with God. Moses does not come to God and say, but God, these people are not that bad. Just give them a chance. He doesn't say, you know, but I've got some righteous people down there. It really does make Moses fascinating because you notice he mirrors Abraham in in an opposite way. Abraham goes about trying to spare Sodom and Gomorrah because surely there's some righteous people down there. Moses doesn't have that angle. (laughs) Moses can't go, well, maybe there's five good ones left. Here's Moses' point. Save the people because of you. Let salvation come because you would be glorified in that. Because these are an undeserving people who should be consumed by your wrath. And God, you know what would make you glorious? It's that you save them anyway. Not on the basis of their deeds, not they're righteous, not that they're good, but because of your own namesake, for your own glory. And thus he points out in verse 13, his faithfulness. Remember the covenant you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember what you said to them about how you were going to keep those words. And God, you always keep those promises. We're going to talk about that as we come through the weekend. That's a very big deal. And before we've even been allowed to set up a priesthood yet, Moses was on the mountain and God was telling Moses about that in chapters 30 and 31 about this priesthood and all that would go on in chapters 28 and 29 about here's how the priest will operate and function and all that. Moses is already being the high priest. Moses is already interceding. Moses is already stepping in and asking Don't do that. In verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing upon his people. All of this is a picture book. A picture is being put forward. Is that what ought to happen is wrath. But there is an intercessor who comes in and makes an appeal before the Lord. And the appeal is not that they are such good people The appeal is based on your faithfulness, God, based upon who you are, based upon your glory, do not destroy them. There's a picture that God is setting up. Is that people need an intercessor. We need someone to stand between us and God. For we deserve the wrath of God. In verse 15, you notice that Moses now comes down the mountain. I think sometimes this is misunderstood as well. Verse 19, it says, as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf 
And the dancing Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that he'd made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. This is not just simply, here's Moses out of control and he starts throwing things in a fit of rage. This is symbolism. Notice where Moses throws these these two tablets. Not when he's on the mountain. That's God's end. As soon as he gets to the base of the mountain, he shatters those two tablets. This is imagery. The people have already broken the covenant. Before Moses can even come down with the law, what is being displayed to them is you have broken the commandments of God. The covenant is broken. And the ramifications of that, we're going to talk about the next three lessons. We're going to do chapters 33 and 34. And here is the imagery already before their eyes. Deuteronomy remind them, you saw that covenant broken before your eyes. That's the imagery here. This covenant has been shattered. And I love it. <laughs> you love this animal so much. You love this gold calf. Verse 20 melts it down. Drink it. Enjoy. You, know, you want it so much? Here you go. And then I love verse 21. Oh my. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? They must have tied you up or something. I mean, what has been going on down here while I've been on the mountain? It's like coming home and catching the babysitter off guard and the kids are going nuts. Well, they must have done something to you. Why are they going crazy like this? The people are are eating, drinking, playing, revelry, pagan worship, and the nations are reviling them for it. And Moses comes down and goes, what did they do to you? They must have done something to you that you've allowed this to go on. Aaron's answer, phenomenal. Verse 22, Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil for they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. I mean... It's a, that's just an obvious answer, Moses. I can't believe you even asked me. Obviously, here's what happened. I just love his answer. First, you know these people. They're terrible. He confirms they're stubborn and stiff neck. You know, the, it's like we've barely been with them. Already Aaron's going, these guys are a mess. You know that. And they said, we need God. So I said, give me some gold. You know what happens when you put gold in fire? Calves leap out and we all start worshiping. It happens all the time. And we read that and we go, that is the most ridiculous excuse for sin I've ever heard. Right? It's just unbelievable. Why is this recorded here? Because our sins and the excuses we make for them are just as ridiculous. They are just as ridiculous. We come up with all kinds of excuses why we did what we did. And we think they sound legitimate, just like, here's Aaron. I mean, he thinks this is a perfectly good excuse. I mean, hey, you know the people and fire calves, that's how it goes. 
Why is your why are you so angry, Moses? Why, why would you be so upset? And we do that with God. God, why are you so upset? I mean, you know, we gotta have some fun down here. Our excuses for sin are just as ridiculous before God. And it's easy to listen to somebody else's excuse for sin and go, boy, that's really dumb. And then turn around and do it ourselves and have our excuse and go, well, it's perfectly justified, right? I mean, what, what's your problem? Why are you so upset at me? Why are you coming to me about this? Why would you talk to me about what I'm doing? I'm a very obvious excuse. Back off. It's the exact same thing. Before God, our excuses do not matter. Our excuses don't fly. They sound utterly absurd before a God who is trying to save us and wants to be with us. And so when Moses sees that they have broken loose, Moses takes his stand and makes this declaration. Who is on the Lord's side? And there is one tribe the Levites who stand up and say, we're on the Lord's side. They're the ones that answer and say, we're not going to do what they're doing. They set themselves apart. And Moses says, here's what God says. Go through the camp with a sword and start killing them until they finally stop. And we're told in verse 28, 3000 people fell that day changes your tune a little bit uh, when you think about when we sing that song I am on the Lord's side answer who am I who is on the Lord that, that's coming off of this who is going to say no to sin and take a stand and say I'm not going to be like that I'm not going to live that way and boy how is it that the Levites stand up and say we're not doing that And in fact, you'll notice verse 29 pronounces a blessing that that's the reason why they're selected to be set apart. This is a defining moment of your 12 tribes, why the Levites are the Levites. It's because they set themselves apart as holy at this very moment. And God says there's a blessing upon them for this. Interestingly, notice verse 30. It says the next day Moses said to the people, it's it's interesting that Moses doesn't do this right now. He waits till tomorrow. And the next day he stands up and here's what he says. You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. You have no idea what you've done and how true that is. When we sin, boy, we do not understand the gravity of what we've done. And that's what Moses is saying. You think this is nothing? He says, here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to go up before the Lord and make atonement for you. Because this is a disaster. You have no idea how bad this is. Do you see those broken tablets at the base of the mountain? God's not in covenant with us. Do you know what he told me? He said, you're not his people anymore. He said he wanted to kill you for what you're doing. You have no idea what you've done. That's what Moses tells him. And perhaps, perhaps I can go up and make atonement for you. I'm going to go talk to God on your behalf. Because you've made a mess. Verse 31. 
And so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Can you believe Moses says that? Moses goes up to God and he says, yeah, they turned their back on you. They've committed a great sin. They're worshiping these calves, these gods of gold. And now if you will forgive their sin, will you just somehow forgive their sin? And if you will not forgive it, then how about me? And blot me out of the book. Take my name out of the book that you've written. Moses is willing to lay it on the line for the sins of the people. He's willing to give himself up for the people. This is unbelievable what he's willing to do. Unbelievable what he says. Just blot me out of the book. I would have been like, yeah, I, they're, they're a mess. You know that idea about the me and the new nation? Let's go with that because this, this, that was really bad. Moses, what an amazing love for these people. He goes up before God and says, please forgive them. And if you won't, blot me out. Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, on the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. God will not (coughs) blot Moses out of the book. God says, no, I'm not going to blot you out of the book. You have a very early concept about sin in verse 33. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of the book. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins shall die. It's very much the principle that's being laid out right here. No, Moses, I'm not going to take you instead. That's not going to work. They are the ones that are worthy of judgment. And what God is laying out here so early on for us is there is a need for an intercessor, a need for one who would go before the people on behalf of their sins. This is what the writer of Hebrews is zeroing in on. Listen to what it says about Jesus. Hebrews 7.22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever now why is it so important that we have a priesthood that is eternal it is there continually it is permanent verse 25 consequently He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. That final line is stunning. 
What does Jesus see his role and purpose as? He always lives. His priesthood is permanent and continues before the very face of God so that he can do what you see Moses doing right here. Make intercession on behalf of the people. This is why the Exodus imagery is so important. Is remember Moses would say, there's going to be a prophet like me that's going to arise. There's going to be another Moses. And as dad spoke of tonight, a new Exodus that would arrive with the new Moses. Jesus is that new Moses. And Jesus is the one that carries out what Moses offers. Here is Jesus who is going to die for the sins of the people. He is going to be the one who will give his life. He is the one who will lay it all out there for the people. For that very purpose is what he came for. He came to seek and save the lost. He comes down and does that very thing. This is the parallel that you see with Moses. As Moses comes down with the law, here's the decrees of God. And who is on the Lord's side? Jesus comes down and proclaims the laws of God and in the same way as calling who is going to be on the Lord's side who will belong to me who will follow Jesus who will be his disciple who will be truly faithful and belong to him and after proclaiming the covenant after teaching his ways he ascends back into heaven and stands at the very presence of God and makes atonement for the people what Moses does right here is being symbolized in the future with Jesus Moses Moses comes down with the law. You all have broken the law. You've committed a great sin. And I'm going to go up and make atonement. Jesus comes down says, here's the law. You have broken God's law. You have sinned. And I'm going to go up and make atonement for you. What you see in Moses is exactly a picture of God's redemption in Christ. And all that God is trying to get us to recognize is the reason we don't receive the wrath that we deserve is because Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He stands in the very presence of God and every single minute of every single day is interceding for you and for me. We ought to die for our sins right here and right now that we should be the Lord saying, move over and let my wrath come out because that's what's deserved. But the price has been paid. Atonement has been made. And we have a faithful high priest who goes up before God and stands in his very presence and says, I died for them. I gave my life for them. My blood is the ransom for them. So that God does not have to give us what we deserve. But instead, can as you see at the end of chapter 32 say, let's go forward with these people. I will continue to be their God. And they will continue to be my people. And the intercession for sin has been received. That's what makes Jesus so great. And why we have such a Savior. We're going to sing a song now. And we're going to invite you to come to Jesus.
and see the intercession that he has made for us. And the intercession that Jesus has made for us is to cause us to desire to be on the Lord's side. To make the decision to no longer behave like the world. But say, I will live for him. To tear down our idols. To rip out of our hearts the things that have pulled our hearts away from God. Because God has done such an amazing display of love. Such an amazing extension of his love that he'd make a sacrifice for sins so that we could continue to be his people. Won't you come to Jesus now while we stand and we sing?